You spent months looking for your perfect home. You looked at a number of different neighborhoods, both new and old. And the problem was, the new ones lacked a lot of character that you wanted in a home. Plus, it was far from work, and there were no businesses nearby to run quick errands to. Sure, the older neighborhoods had drawbacks too. The home you looked at needed upgrading and were a little on the small side. But you figured that worst case scenario, you could just add onto the house so that it could meet your needs. So you closed on the house and went to get started on your addition only to find out you're not allowed? In today's episode, we're going to look at nonconformities and why it's time to rethink them. I'm Alex Suffman, and this is City Planning Matters. The situation that I described in the introduction to this podcast is something that I think that a lot of planners across the country have dealt with previously, and that is nonconformities. So before we get into the particulars of why cities need to rethink nonconformities and their policies related to them, a good place to start is to talk about what nonconforming situations are. So nonconformities can be thought of in two categories. The first is nonconforming uses, and the second is nonconforming dimensional requirements. And so nonconforming uses are pretty easy uh, to consider or to think about and understand the nonconforming situations and why cities uh, try to regulate them. So a nonconforming situation can be maybe there is a factory that's in a particular neighborhood that was built at the beginning of the city. Over time, houses were built near it. And so the city zoned that area residential and uh made that particular factory non-conforming. The other type of situation is one of the dimensional non-conformity. It's a little bit more complicated, but it follows the same general premise. You have a home that was built maybe with a zero lot line in the front, so it's built all the way to the street. And after that home was built, the city adopts zoning standards and says that now that front yard setback needs to actually be 20 feet because they want to allow for a car to park in the front yard in that residential district. And now that home is non-conforming from a dimensional standard perspective. And so the, the real thought process behind it is that you want to see your city evolve over time and essentially have all properties conform to zoning. And the reason for that was because, as we discussed in other episodes, cities were dealing with some very serious health, safety, and welfare type of issues. And so cities wanted to enforce zoning and see that these problematic uses or these problematic situations that were creating issues of health or overcrowding would go away. And so through a variety of Supreme Court decisions, what policies cities ended up adopting were that they would allow for nonconformities to be in their current state, 
but that they would not be allowed to be expanded or to change uh, to something more egregious over time with the hope being that at some point that property would either be demolished or would come into conformance with the zoning ordinance. And one of the things that we know to be true today is that this is certainly not the case. When we look at how slowly cities change and adapt over time, this is not a very realistic expectation. As I highlighted in a previous episode, we talk about how the city grid and urban form does not change significantly. It takes really an act of Congress to change the configuration of lots. And so we saw that from an infrastructure perspective that cities do not change very much after they're built. Now, with individual properties, that's not always the case. There are instances where obviously properties do get redeveloped, buildings get torn down, new buildings go up. But when we think about it on a much larger scale outside of an individual building, but looking at the citywide, nonconformities have a tendency not to go away. So you may be wondering, you know, how can I check this in my city? And one of the interesting things that a lot of cities actually require, and it's one of the challenges of nonconformity enforcement, is that cities require registration of nonconformities. So essentially a property owner wants to you know, do something, their property gets flagged, and they're like, well, my property's been like this for a long time. The city has a requirement that says, okay, well, you need to come in and register that nonconformity. And so if you wanted to look at, for example, you know, how, how widespread is a problem in your city, and I say problem in quotes because it's not really a problem, and that's what we're going to be talking about later in this episode, is that you could get the data that shows where all the nonconformities are and, and map them. And so in my analysis that I did for the city that I live in, we found that there were about 4,000 nonconformities in the city. And, you know, El Paso is a city of about 750,000 people, 800,000 people. And so uh, that by no means is exhaustive, but those are the ones that have been registered. And so it just shows you the magnitude of this situation. And one of the interesting things, and probably it's going to be true across the board, is that when we look at the spatial location of where these nonconformities exist, they're in all older neighborhoods. And that's obvious. You would expect to find that because what I described at the top of this episode is that development was built at a time when there were no zoning regulations, zoning regulations come in, and now these buildings no longer conform to these new standards, which are more restrictive. So what are the problems associated with our nonconformities, and why are they not working for cities? So in my estimation, I find four central issues with our existing nonconformity policies. And 
the first one that I've already discussed uh, in in some detail here is that nonconformities as a whole do not go away. And the magnitude of the problem uh, in your city may vary from uh, one place to the next. But in the example that I showed in my city is that we've had zoning in El Paso since the 1930s. And still today, you know, 90 years later, we still have more than 4,000 continued nonconformities. So I think first and foremost, this expectation that nonconformities will go away over time is, is false. Then the second issue is that of enforcement. And so some nonconformities are in existence since before zoning is enacted. A lot of nonconformities come about after the fact. And again, when we just think about enforcing our zoning regulations and building codes in general, uh, it relies on people getting building permits and go to any particular neighborhood on a weekend and just see the amount of construction happening uh, probably without a building permit. And it's just the reality of the situation is that not everybody gets work permitted. And so you think about that again over the long term of you know 90 years or so. And you can just imagine that all of these non-permitted work projects over time create this issue where there's a lot more non-conformities in your city uh, than you probably think. And that really highlights the third issue with nonconformities. And that's that, you know, it's really reliant on self-monitoring and, you know, this registration process where essentially a property owner self-identifies and says, you know, I have a nonconformity and uh, I got caught a lot of times. I went to do a project and uh, I found out that I, I'm not allowed to do it. And so I don't want to have issues with enforcement later down the road. So I'm going to register my property as non-conforming and essentially lock in the development that I have uh, to make it you know, legal non-conforming. And then that highlights then probably the biggest issue with legal non-conforming policies and really what's going to be the central focus for the remainder of the discussion, which is that it has the effect of discouraging development a lot of times where you want it. And, uh, you know, you look at your comprehensive plan, your comprehensive plan says that it wants to encourage infill development or redevelopment of older existing neighborhoods. And, your zoning regulations and the inflexibility of your nonconforming policy have a lot of times the inverse effect where you end up discouraging the exact things that you say that you want in your city. So before we get into what policies need to look like in order to have a more flexible approach when it comes to nonconformities, Let's first talk a little bit about what a typical nonconforming policy in a city looks like. So typically, 
a non-conforming policy has a stated intent. You know, say something like, the stated intent of this policy is to allow for existing development to continue in its existing state, but it discourages the expansion or alteration of non-conformities and seeks to have eventual conformance with the zoning regulations. And so as I already mentioned multiple times, that hardly ever happens, but it is the stated intent of the policy. Then it will describe the non-conforming situations that this policy applies to. So again, it's usually broken down by some type of you know, use policy, so a non-conforming use situation. And then there's the non-conforming dimensional situation. And so again, non-conforming dimensional requirements can be anything from setbacks, but it can also include things like parking. And so then besides that, then the other components of the non-conforming policy look at what work is permitted. And so it will say, you know, maybe you're allowed to do general upkeep of a non-conformity, but you're not allowed to expand or enlarge the extent of the non-conformity. So you can't do like a building addition um, that further encroaches into the required yard setback. You can't go vertical because that would also be expanding the non-conformity. And then the last part that it usually looks at is, you know, what happens in the case of destruction? And so, you know, it would be a destruction that's caused by things not related to the owner. So like the owner doesn't demolish their building, um, but it could be something like fire or earthquake or something that's out of the property owner's control. And a lot of times what it says is that, you know, essentially when the value of the building that exceeds more than 50% is lost, then the property owner has to come into compliance. And so a lot of times what ends up happening is, is that in the event of destruction or intentional demolition, because the property owner is looking to redevelop his, his, his land, the resulting development uh, can, that, that comes in after the fact cannot match what was there before. And so just to give a really practical example, say that, you know, the whole block face of a particular area in your city has zero lot line buildings. Again, they are built all the way to the front. They have no parking uh, because, you know, they were developed before the car uh, and the lots are pretty small. So they really couldn't accommodate the parking anyways. And uh, the property owner, you know, demolishes their building and they go to get permitted for another project and maybe they're just trying to match what's already on the ground to, you know, better fit in with the context of the neighborhood only to find out that they can't, uh, they can't build all the way to the front. They have to require a lot of parking. And so what options does that property owner have? And a lot of times the answer is the answer is they can't really do anything. Um, property sits vacant. It's not redeveloped. The other scenario is, is that let's say the lot is large enough to accommodate the parking. You get a situation where the development does not match the existing context and character of a neighborhood. And I'm sure you can picture or have examples in your mind of, you know, where you see this in your own city, you go into a particular neighborhood and you're like, man, that building looks 
completely out of context. It doesn't match what's there. You can tell it was built in the 1970s, uh, not only from an architectural style, but also just from a site planning uh, perspective. And that's really the problematic issue with with nonconformities outside of the fact that they don't go away. And so what I want to discuss here after the break is in a scenario where you want to be a little bit more progressive and you want to you know, not discourage the very development that your comprehensive plan calls for, what would the components of a better nonconforming policy look like? Now that we spent some time going over what some of the problematic issues are with our existing nonconforming policies, now we want to talk a little bit about what cities can do to better address the situation and regulate these in a much more user-friendly and better planning principled way that really promotes a lot of the stated goals, again, in your city's comprehensive plan. And so what I've done is I've outlined essentially five different steps that you can undertake to look at your policy and then lay out three ways that once you develop your policy, how you can implement it to varying degrees to have a stronger, more positive outcome as it relates to promoting development in older neighborhoods. And so the first step that you really should undertake and that you should develop in concert with your elected officials and with neighborhoods is to differentiate between benign and you know problematic nonconformities. And so for each community, this conversation is going to look different. In some cities, people are more concerned about particular issues than others. And so it really should be a community-specific type of conversation. But just to give an example between you know, what a benign uh, nonconformity would look like as opposed to a problematic one is, you know, do we really care uh, if you know, somebody is adding on to their garage and you know, building one foot into the side yard setback? That conversation looks a whole lot different than, okay, the old factory is looking to add on an additional 10,000 square feet and into, you know, what was previously a open space and now is going to be getting even closer to homes. That's the conversation that needs to take place to identify what are those things that your community sees as problematic versus ones that, truth be told, maybe nobody really cares about. And it's just this unnecessary hurdle that we have in place in our codes. The second thing to look at is to allow for expansions in certain cases. And that's the caveat, is that we want to have criteria that looks at these things. And so again, looking at the residential example, do we really care if our neighbors build an addition onto their house? More times than not, the answer is no, but at the same time, you want to have some type of limitation or some type of criteria 
to figure out, okay, most of the time the answer to that question is no, but here are the things that I would be concerned about as a citizen or as a planner who's trying to promote better design in our neighborhoods. The third step is to look at the issue of abandonment. And so again, in a lot of these non-conforming policies, there's this requirement that says, you know, after a certain period of time, the use is considered abandoned or the building is considered abandoned and now it's got to come into conformance. And the question is, is that really realistic? Let's say that there's a building that has sat vacant for a long time. How is that building suddenly going to come into conformance without tearing it down? And if you tear it down, you can't build the same thing back. And it really begs the question, you know, is this a realistic requirement? Does it really matter? Because again, if your comprehensive plan or your your city's economic development strategy is that you want to see investment and in, you know order maybe dilapidated neighborhoods, you really need to take a hard look and see: Are my development regulations and are my development policies stating something that's the exact opposite of what our intended goals are as a city? The fourth thing is to look at your city's policy as it relates to destruction or loss of property. And again, you know, in the scenarios that I had brought up uh, in the previous discussion is that in the instance that a property is lost, is it more problematic to build something that's completely out of character with the neighborhood? Or is it more of an issue to build something that matches that doesn't conform with your zoning regulations. And again, that's going to be a very city-specific type of conversation, but when we think about this as a practical matter, you know, if what was lost in the event of destruction is for practical purposes good design and it doesn't conform to your zoning regulation, it makes sense that you'd want to allow for that to be built back just as a matter of practical application. And so then that leads into then the last part, which is establishing criteria that looks at promoting conformity in terms of form and less about regulations that look at limitations. And so when we think about a lot of our zoning ordinances, they have a limiting effect. They say you can't build higher than this amount or you can't build closer than this. And what our non-conforming policies and policies that look at you know, non-conforming situations in general, what we really should be thinking about is how do we make sure that future development matches what's on the ground? And the reason that this is important, again, when we think about from a broad context, the purpose of, you know, zoning regulations and why nonconformities were put in place is because they were dealing with, again, these health and safety issues that, you know, since the 1930s, there have been more stringent policies that have been adopted at a federal level that have addressed these things. So, again, you know, one of the reasons that we maybe didn't want to have, you know, factories in residential neighborhoods was because of, you know, issues related to smog or pollutants. And so, of course, then from the federal side of things, we adopted the Clean Air Act. And the Clean Air Act has had the effect of regulating industry so that way maybe zoning ordinances don't need to be as concerned about that. Um, 
the the other thing is that maybe we had you know more limitations on setbacks or building heights because there was concern about safety and then since that time we've adopted modern building codes and we have sprinkler requirements and so again there've been you know a lot of advancement in the world of regulation that addresses many of the issues that maybe zoning doesn't need to consider or be concerned as much about anymore. And so let's say that you go through these different steps and you've developed this policy um, that that addresses these things. And by the way, if you're looking for you know, a city that has maybe a really good policy as a place to, to take a look at, you know, I would suggest looking at a lot of the the West Coast, the bigger cities. Uh, they have a much more progressive stance when it comes to zoning and zoning regulations. Um, one that I've looked at before, and that when I was trying to figure out, you know, is this something that maybe my city could adopt? I was looking at uh, Portland's policy. Uh, Portland doesn't address all of these things, but it gives you an idea of, you know differentiating between, you know, these benign and problematic nonconformities. And it's a really good place to, to start. And so let's say, for example, you go through, you've developed your policy, you follow these steps. How do I implement this? And, you know, the, the way that I find the best way to approach these situations is that it's never really a good idea to start with the heaviest form of regulation first, uh, especially if your city is not one that's very progressive or is uh, comfortable with some you know progressive ideas as it as it relates to to zoning policy. And so, the good place to start, in, in my mind, is something that's non mandatory but still has uh, some level of review. And so let's say that you have this policy, a really good place to start would be to establish criteria uh, for your zoning board. Uh, in our case, it's called the Zoning Board of Adjustment. You might have a zoning hearing board. Um, each city has some flexibility as it relates to coming up with the special exceptions that zoning boards are allowed to permit. And so maybe through your nonconforming policy, you have these different standards that look at the five different steps and the criteria for approval uh, where you're determining whether or not it's benign uh, could be approved by your zoning board. Uh, that's a huge step forward than perhaps going through the variance process or your zoning regulations, which just flat out don't allow for it. That's a really good first pl place to, to start because you know, it's not administrative. It still gives a public hearing. There's still an opportunity for people to be uh, given to speak out against a particular project if they want. And so, you know, that, that would be a really good first place to start. And so let's say that, you know, you, you do that first step, you have a zoning hearing board procedure, and maybe you want to facilitate it and make it easier. Or you know that your city understands the extent of the problem and really wants to promote this. So what could be an intermediate step? So the intermediate step would then be to change your, your policy uh, and make it administrative. So again, you would have these criteria that, uh, you know, as, at a staff level, someone could submit an application and ask you to consider their, their nonconformity and, and maybe an expansion to it. And so long as 
you meet certain criteria, staff could approve it and allow you to go through the building permit process, thereby bypassing the public hearing. Um, but you still have some type of criteria to evaluate and and, and uh, would give staff the opportunity to maybe negotiate on the design or to uh, you know deny that application. And so you do that, that's your intermediate step. Now let's say that you want to streamline the process even more and you know you've you've grown the level of comfort not only with your elected officials but also at a staff level where you're just like you know we don't even want to deal with it at a staff level because you know the 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 administration is more challenging than uh, maybe the negative effects that are coming of it maybe you know, people don't want to go through that process because there's really no complaint on the neighbor side. And maybe elected officials are saying, you know, hey, staff, can you figure out how we can facilitate this even more so that way people don't even have to go through this process? And really, that's the last step and, and how you can build, you know, again, from a, a board approval to a staff level type of approval to finally where you get to a place where you take the different regulations that you've developed in the nonconforming policy and you can establish either an overlay uh, on an existing residential district where maybe you automatically give people some flexibility recognizing the existing conditions of that neighborhood or last, you know, you can also uh, have a separate zoning district in general that permits a variety of mixed uses, maybe a traditional neighborhood type of uh, zoning district uh, that looks more at form and less at regulation, which would be more in line with what we would call a form-based code. And so to wrap up, uh, I think what we've done here is we've highlighted a really good process to get started with relooking at our nonconforming policies. Again, they have the effect of discouraging development and redevelopment in places that we want to see in our cities. Uh, they also don't have the intended effect in that these nonconformities don't go away. And then also the challenge that it creates with enforcement. And so what we've done was we've laid out a five-step process to relook at our policies and how we might change them and then set in place a, a process to start again at this uh, board level to allow for maybe a more proactive approach to nonconformities to then build that into perhaps a, adopting a policy at a staff level for enforcement and then finally taking a look at if there are no issues with enforcing your non-conforming policy at an administrative level, could you get it into your codes and streamline the process further? So thank you again for listening to this episode. Hopefully that you got a lot out of this and uh, looking forward to discussing these issues and more with you in the future. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you're enjoying the content, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen and rate the podcast so we can continue to improve the content of each episode for our listeners. I'm Alex Huffman, and this is Planning Matters.